0: This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. My guest this week is Dean Bubley, a 5G cloud mobile connectivity telecom guru and a friend of mine based out of the UK. I caught up with him recently to talk about the future trends in mobile connectivity or how we use applications. And before you check out on this topic, I want to remind you, we spend on average five hours a day using apps. Yes, we do. Almost everything we do involves an app. Banking, shopping, traveling, gaming, entertainment, security, you name it, we use it. That is a significant part of our waking lives. And whether you realize it or not, the future of apps is important to us. What would happen if the networks and internet our devices use is compromised, or worst case scenario, isn't available at all? Sound far fetched? Have you checked the news? Given the current geopolitics, it is part of an interesting discussion that you don't want to miss. So join Dean and I for the conversation on the next QTS experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS experience. The latency and edge one, I mean, the, the, the point I'm gonna
1: make there is latency often gets discussed around networks between Let's say the home uh, or the, the phone and it could be the wireless tower it could be the nearest network node but actually that's not end-to-end latency for the application and so for example here you're in your studio i'm in my house we've got our respective broadband connections we've got probably in my case wife my, my wi-fi in the house um you've got the international leg of it you've got the where the servers are the the zoom runs. There's there's essentially you know twenty different moving parts, and the same thing. If we were playing an I don't know augmented reality game in the park somewhere, you might be on Verizon, I might be on AT and T. Where's the interconnect point? Yeah, you can have you can have a, the lowest latency between your phone and the cell tower and mine and my cell tower, but the gameplay, who knows where it all
0: interconnects? Hey, Dean, guess what? I'm not counting us into the podcast. You just started the podcast. That is a (laughs) perfect segue. By the way, what happened since the last time I saw you? Because here's where I'm a little upset about. When I talk to someone from London, I expect them to be more pale. I not this handsome and uh, stylish. You've got a stylish shirt on your rooms. Well, lit. I can see the books actually in the background. I think it's kind of a throwdown. It's a vulgar display of power and I don't appreciate it. You're trying to show me up on my own show
1: welcome welcome i've moved i've moved house and i'm now in a room which actually gets some sunshine rather than the basement before i've got a better camera and um i don't know what magic zoom does with image processing as well as the camera but um yeah it, let's just say yeah. i don't think my girlfriend would complain if i look like this all the time yeah. I like shirts i like nice shirts but yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll take that one
0: well you look pretty you look pretty good again welcome to the show i love uh as we were um, we got the cameras rolling, so it's by way of preamble of my in- intro. We're just going to use that. Let's let's keep going with that theme because yeah. our audience has grown so large now that um, it's not just technologists or people in technology or even people related to the telecom or data center business. And this conversation is constantly coming up: the edge, um, latency around the edge, et cetera, which is where you just started your yeah. talk. I, I have wa- waxed and wane on this conversation uh, on my, um, th- that's the wrong phrase, what I'm looking for. I, I have, um, we have spent a lot of time talking about what the edge is or is it? What do you think the edge is? And and then let's go into the latency conversation you are having and why, if I'm, you know, if I'm not a telecom person, why do I even care about these things? Right.
1: Well, to be honest, it's more of if you're an application person. Okay. I think we, and I think that the telecom industry talks about network latency, and particularly people from the, the mobile industry on 5G. So how are we going to get from, you know, 30 milliseconds to 20 to 10 to one with ultra reliable, low latency communications and, and all that jazz.
0: The only other people uh, and, who and, care about and, that are people who play Fortnite or Dota or League of Legends because they're looking at the latency in their combat gaming. Well, and everybody yeah. by definition is an application person, right? Because they're looking at their Netflix. They're they may be a consumer of an app, not an app developer, but True. everybody's tied well, to an app.
1: Well, interesting. I mean, Netflix is interesting because actually, you know, when you're watching a movie, it buffers. So you don't actually know and care what the dis what you know, if, if you've got 10 seconds, 20 seconds video in the buffer somewhere, right. the actual latency between the server and the modem or the screen or or, or the set-top box is, is largely relevant. The way you do care about latency on a TV is when you hit the channel button and you want it to switch instantly, right. and you don't want it to have a 200 millisecond round trip via who knows where. And that's why things like streaming of TV is difficult, because it's actually... it's The, 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 the thing you really notice the delay on is, is stuff like Pause or a change channel or something like that. It's the mm. control there. So and the same thing, yeah, in terms of who else cares about latency. The really interesting thing here is you know, firstly, is latency is it one-way or is it bi-directional? What, why don't you it?
0: define latency? What is
1: latency? Latency is the lag between someone or an application asking for something to happen and for that message to go up, typically across a network um, to a server somewhere, something gets sent back. And from the user's point of view, that's the, the time lag between you asking for the system to do something and it doing it. Mm. Um, and there's lots of different parts that go to make up what sometimes gets called the latency budget. And there's the inherent part of the, the communication across a network, which is a combination of the speed of light, um, you know, and and you know, fundamentally, you, you can't do an awful lot about that. If you're playing a game with someone in Australia or the servers in Australia, mm-hmm. and you're on the other side of the planet, you've got to deal with the fact that, that the speed of light is what it is. Um, well, I'll, I'll come, I'll hold that, hold that yeah. thought, yeah. come back to that in a minute. <laughs> you know, so you've got a certain amount of of of, inbuilt time lag. You've also got um, depending on the network. Um, and how the network components encode the data um, and send it across, Yeah, you know, quite often, ne- you know, networks, they bundle up data into a packet and then transmit the packet. But the delay in waiting for all the, the, the bits to arrive to assemble into a suitably sized pa- uh, packet, that creates delay, as does disassembling it at the other end, as does any switches or routers in the middle. So There's lots of sort of technical components of delay, as well as um, you know we're doing this on video. Mm -hmm. And you've also got the video coding and encoding. You've got this trade-off between you could just send individual bits over the wire, over the air. But actually, what we do is we try and compress that. And to compress video or audio, you need to wait for a while until you've got enough to compress. Mm. And so you've got this trade-off between efficiency and latency. Um, if you don't want to send everything uncompressed all the time, then you've got to accept a certain amount of delay. And there's all these little bits and pieces of delay that add up of how many interconnection points are there, the server at the other end, is there a queue somewhere in a buffer somewhere, you know, in, in in various the network nodes. Uh, and so all of that adds up. Now, the, the interesting thing is, for applications there can be as much as 10 orders of magnitude difference in how much latency or delay you are prepared to tolerate. Hmm. Um, so, for example, let's say you are monitoring the level of water or oil in a massive industrial tank. Right. It probably doesn't change very much hour on hour or even day by day. Yeah, you could probably set. Yeah, I mean that's why a lot of oil tanks—they send today, they send someone up up the ladder, looks in the top, maybe they've got a laser pointer, and then comes down the ladder and writes it up. Yeah. Now, obviously, that's deeply inefficient, but you don't need to have a reading every microsecond because it doesn't change much. The same things with um, room temperature for air conditioning. You know, maybe on a, every five minutes, it, it there's a, a degree one way or, or the other, but it doesn't change millisecond by millisecond. So you don't really care about it. Uh, if you're an elevator engineer, you want to know that the doors take a bit longer to close this week than they did last week. So you send the engineer out a month early to do the maintenance. Right. Yeah. At the other end of the scale, you've got, um, let's say, on a production line in a factory, and you need to synchronize two machines that are you know, sort of cogs or wheels or whatever. And there, you might not just be, you have, they, each one has to be three milliseconds, but it has to be exactly the same gap. So it needs to be three, six, nine, 12, 15, deterministic latency, mm-hmm. not just low latency, but predictable, because otherwise, nasty things happen. And then you get other things, which are so rapid response. So if you're doing Laser etching on silicon, or something like that, or, or X-ray um, uh, uh, work on, you know, on on a in a, in a chip foundry. You, you might even be talking nanoseconds, even femtosecond laser pulses, um, mm. where you, frankly you can't use the network at all, and you need to do the compute essentially on the chip itself right. locally. So you've got this massive you know, span from, you know, femtoseconds to nanoseconds to microseconds to seconds to minutes to hours to, to days. Uh, and, and and so we get hung up, particularly on things like gaming or, you know, video communications. The sweet spot is like between the the, the 10 to 100 millisecond bracket is where we probably, as humans, notice the difference. Right. Um, you know, if, if you're doing speech, anything more than one to 200 milliseconds on a phone call It's difficult because you can't interrupt properly. You start talking over the top of each other. It feels like a walkie-talkie session rather than an interactive conversation. Um, And so so there's a lot of interest in how do we get latency, either for the human-centric applications like gaming and phone calls or the sort of robotic and machine ones where it may well be milliseconds, microseconds. And there's another category here where you've got um, software which has lots of sort of um, acknowledgements and handshakes backwards and forwards, it all adds up. Mm-hmm. So if if you've got ten you know, transmissions one way or the other, and each one is ten milliseconds, the aggregate is hundred milliseconds before something happens. Right. So 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 that from a developer point of view, you also need to think through 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 those lags. And yeah, you know, maybe if you've got to fire up a virtual machine here, and then you. Got to get some other bit of data from a you know data center somewhere else, and this algorithm does this, and you need the advert served from here, then the, all of the bits of latency personally need to be in sync, but your web page, let's say, is as slow as the weakest, weakest element right not that. So, so you know, all of that is means that the, the concept of latency and delay is quite complicated. And so you you hear all these sort of fairly in my view, sort of facile comments saying, oh, well, you know, 5G will give you one millisecond latency. Well, firstly, only if you've got enough radio resources to do that and the right spectrum, not the right spectrum, but also um, the right con- um, generation of the uh, core network software to be able to, to manage that. But you're then also hostage to all of the other sources of delay. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, A good example is let's say you've got two people in a park playing an augmented reality game it's sort of multiplayer pokemon go or something like that um but they're on different networks you yeah, know and so you you're on Verizon, <coughs> i'm on ATT or bodan or whatever it is and, and and even though you might be physically proximate you know, your your connection to your network and my connection to my network might be very fast and maybe they've got some you know local servers doing the graphics processing and polygon rendering and stuff but the gameplay of I'm hitting a ball to you, or I'm catching a monster, or whatever it happens to be. Where do they intersect? Do they have to go all the way to the back of the network and connect?
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, and so it may well be that you have really great graphics and low latency, but the actual gameplay might have added delay because of the circuitous route that the, that the that the compute takes. So, what's the solution to that? Right. The solution, well, there's a few things. Firstly, it's understanding this and understanding all of the sources delay. But I think one of the things, and this brings it back to sort of edge compute, and also the role of data sensors, mm. is that a lot of the, the, the applications of the future will not be hosted in just one network. It will be two vehicles coming to a junction on a different network, two game players. To you know the the truck the autonomous truck turns up to the loading bay of a warehouse whatever it is and right they may be on the same network but they might not be mm-hmm. uh, and so what you need is a lot more dense interconnection points I mean there's there's, there's lots of, of different uh, elements here but one is I think we're going to need more interconnection whether they're peering points sort of internet style exchanges or something else I think we'll need a much more um, Dispersed and distributed grid of interconnect points, and and that's both expensive and complex, and particularly for the cellular and the mobile industry, there's some technical and almost philosophical challenges because it involves a thing called local breakout. Most, yeah, you know, with, with with most fixed broadband your traffic goes to the local cable head end or the fiber access node or something like that, and pretty much it takes the most direct path to the nearest internet exchange. So explain what your ISP broadband is. Fixed, home broadband, home or business broadband. Okay. So you know, your cable internet, your fiber gotcha. internet, yep. you know, older DSL lines, but generally speaking, your ISP wants to get your traffic to and from someone else's network, as fast and efficiently as possible. Yeah, if they can essentially dump it to the internet, it's someone else at a peering point. It's someone else's problem to do the rest of it. The mobile industry, they want to funnel all the traffic through their core network functions because they do policy control. They do billing and charging often on, on that data flow. Um, so there's, there tends to be this sort of funneling back through the middle of the network tendency and um, that has to change in future if you're doing this sort of you know, playing a game in the park you need to have this concept of what's called local breakout to sort of avoid going back to the main carrier data center yeah now what you're, you're starting to see is that some carriers are might they might have go from one or two data centers to five, 10, 20 regional ones which helps but ultimately i think they'll need to get more granular than that um, and they also have to they think it's quite difficult because at those local points with breakout points, they need to work out how you do billing and charging. Does your plan allow you that much data, that much speed, whatever the characteristics you're paying for? Some of them will also say that they have legal responsibilities on um uh you know, uh, regulatory intercepts or record keeping or something else so that needs to be function needs to be distributed locally as well potentially mm-hmm. so it, it, it's non-trivial to get true low latency cross-network applications we'll pause now, for one second
0: i've got a question yeah. for you hopefully this is a good spot to interrupt so i i have heard At least five years, but I want to say 10 years. We're going to do some version of what you've just described at the base of a tower, one of the American tower towers or somebody else's tower. We're going to do these things. And we keep scratching our head around. And full disclosure, I'm in the data center business. My data centers are not small, they're generally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of square feet um, in size. And they're full of the types of people that we're talking about among among others, um, you know, the world's largest internet um, companies and et cetera. Also, your local service providers are there. But I'm imagining what's the practical application of saying, okay, first of all, what qualifies to go into the box that we're going to do this, um, we're going to put this intersection at two, whatever that physical size is, how do we physically secure it? How do we check it? How do we power it? How do we cool it? How do we upgrade it? How do How do we keep enough space? How do we make sure there's no physical penetration um, back to, uh, and I'm just thinking about in North America, you know, in the United States, it's pretty easy, all things considered to do that across, I, I say pretty easy, generally speaking, thinking of the whole world, I'm not wrestling with the issues between say, Germany and Poland, and how would we do intersections across those, I'm just struggling between Georgia, Alabama, you know, Tennessee, etc. So as you, it seems like this, we agree in concept that intersections and pushing the edge to these, um, or, or more connection points, For in other words, If if I've got a traffic jam, I don't want to drive back down into Atlanta, which only LA and Washington, DC have worse traffic in the United States than Atlanta to go down to what we call spaghetti junction, this big, massive 30 different freeway intersections coming together and then to come back out because it just kills your speed. Whereas if I could just go in a circle around, or I could turn and go in another direction and pivot, but there's no big uh, streets that allow me to do that. So I say this to say, how do you imagine from the physical, not just the philosophical, but the physical way that we would do dozens, hundreds, thousands of more intersection points? I mean, I think that
1: firstly, those are the right numbers is dozens or hundreds, I think is more likely. The, okay. the idea you're going to put something at every cell tower, that crops up a lot. And I think that that is improbable. Um and also i mean you have to consider that, that some cell towers are are rooftops in a city right. that's right yeah you know, where you, in fact you're paying rent to as it is to put gear on the roof or in in the uh in the basement to to power it right so that's very different to sort of a rural cell tower where you've got you know a hundred, yeah, hundred square meters or whatever it is you could put right. in theory at least you could put a shipping container full of servers, right. yeah, or, or yeah, inside the secure fence. Mm-hmm. So there's a big difference between that between to sticking it on 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 a skyscraper rooftop or in the in the basement. Mm-hmm. So 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 separate those two out. Um, I think that what we're going to get is is the regional cities, and I'm starting to see a number of both new startups, but also I guess attempts at federation between whether it's carriers, whether it's some of the internet exchanges doing almost sort of IX as a service, or yeah. So I know the 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 focus is an organization called DECIX, D E C I S, mm. and they almost like do virtualized internet exchanges, the sort of mini exchanges, which facilitate those you know meet me functions and the crossover points. Now that's traditionally it's between Internet ISPs and cloud resource companies, whether it's hyperscalers or it's companies that have specific cloud functions, it could be security, it could be a specialist AI provider or an advertising network or a a graphics rendering specialist or something
0: like that. What is an Um, advertising network? I've never heard that uh, before. Uh, uh, yeah, oh, ad, advertising. Yeah, I thought you ad, said appetizing. Yeah. I was like, no, 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 there's a whole food so... network out there that I don't know about? Oh,
1: probably... <laughs> no, I need to find this out. Um, so, so, but again, if you think about what you need in a game, right. you, you've got a bunch of, of software components, and you might well find that there's, uh, particularly in future, if you buy into the, the Web3 rhetoric, you know, maybe your avatar is, star, star, is stored somewhere, the payment system is another, the... High score table or whatever it is is, is in the third place. You've got a lot of different things that are brought together to to make up that game or application. And it's certainly true of yeah you know, web web uh, functions where you're calling on different microservices where you're yeah you've got a plugin from this this provider that does the I don't know uh, captioning yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, there's probably some way we could do live captioning. I don't know if Zoom does it automatically, but I'm sure there's you know, captionsinc.com that will do real-time feed or something like that, you know, which we might have on, on, on this call. Right. And so so for internet applications, you definitely have this sort of, an application is often made up of components from lots of different places, and they may e- each have their own hosting or, um, you yeah, know, their own connectivity <laughs> requirements. In the mobile world, it gets more complicated because you've got the the the, if like the carrier to carrier interconnect, and, and often the, the the mobile carriers have a gateway onto the public internet. So whereas most of our broadband is, if you like, it's 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 internet native, the mobile world needs gateways to and from the public internet. Mm. Um, and the question is how how many of those gateways are there, and and, and where are they? And it, it, what you're starting to see is that the first step. Is that a lot of the mobile carriers are partnering with one or more of the hyperscale cloud companies, so Azure, AWS, Google,
0: mm.
1: you know, because a lot of the applications are hosted in Azure or on AWS. So if you're, you know, Verizon or Vodafone, and you want to do, uh, you want to sell to. I don't know oil companies or energy companies or manufacturing companies. You know that the I O that they if they're using cloud cloud based services, they'll be mostly hosted on one or more of the big cloud platforms. So, so the first stage here is um, the carriers interacting with their preferred cloud. Specialists and there's, there's two or three different models emerging here of whether you know you might find that Verizon is acting essentially as a channel partner for AWS's um, uh, you know localized nodes. So they've got what I'm trying to remember. There's one called Outposts, which is the on-premise um, uh, thing that, that AWS does. And there's oh, I completely forgot, I completely escaped my mind the name of the one that goes in in the five G network. And they've got a, a bunch of other. Edge products as well, uh, and I think that's one one type of partnership. And you're seeing Azure, um, yeah, uh, Microsoft Azure with ATT and T, and similar deals in other countries as well.
0: Do you think and this I think will brands, become? Can I ask you a quick yeah. question? Do you think that's going to become more boutique, meaning, or not boutique, but if if Verizon partners with a cloud provider, we'll just say a cloud provider and. It's, and um, T-Mobile does it and Vodafone or whoever. like the the four or five choose a major partner. And and so two things. one, I now get a much richer, lower latency whatever experience if I'm using services, whether that's gaming or it's you know business or whatever it is. And conversely, if I'm if I'm trying to get to another network, my experience isn't, um, you know it it's less than optimal
1: I think that's i think that's the interim stage ultimately, I think that almost all carriers will have to work with almost all hyperscale cloud companies, yeah because sense. enterprises are all going to sort of hybrid cloud multi cloud yeah, and it may well be that that there's you know, someone in the middle like a VMware or something like that, which acts as as, the, as a the, the sort of gateway enabler or something like that. So, so but I, I think that initially you'll get this phase where there's sort of alignment with one or two. But in the long run, most whatever it is as a service, cloud based right. things will run probably across multiple different clouds. Anyway, and a lot of enterprises are looking at this multi-cloud strategy, uh, and so I think and, yeah, so I think th- that's that's certainly happening. One one thing to be aware of here is that, that when you see deals between carriers and cloud companies, not all of them are this sort of thing, which is if you like enterprise facing. You've got things that the other the other side to bear in mind is that the cloud companies are working with the telcos on running the network software itself. Mm. Um, and so, if you look at what Dish is doing with Amazon, Dish has got a particular sort of virtualized network infrastructure that is inherently cloud-based. And so, there, the main like, reason for Dish to be working with AWS is to run its own network. Yeah, and, what's and, and the so. Of that? Well, then you get into this whole world. There's there's this there's buzzword that that you'll crop up. You'll see it cropping up a lot in five G discussions. Open ran, which is essentially running part of your radio network as a as a as cloud, a virtualized cloud based software. Now, there's been various things you've done over the over the year with with your cell tower. You've started to see virtualization of some of the electronics that used to come in as a dedicated box. Now, firstly, running on uh, commercial hardware and then put into um, you know, a data center, so you might have one what's called base station hotel running the, um, the functions, there's one called a baseband function for multiple cell towers. So you, you reduce the amount of, of gear you need at each cell site, which reduces the power consumption, the space requirement, the, you know, the weight you need to, to carry up the tower. You know, so, so there's efficiencies there um the next stage beyond that is to run it on on cloud platforms and there's various approaches called cloud cloud ran ran is radio network uh, and you know fully open ran where you can you where, where the 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 various bits of the radio network are disaggregated with standard um interfaces so you don't have to go buy all the bits from ericsson or all the bits from nokia or from huawei or or whoever
0: if you can I'm buy con- I'm sorry, go ahead and yeah. finish your thought. I'm
1: sorry. So part of the reason for this is it, it, you know, it helps to bring uh, in, in bringing new suppliers into the market by standardizing the interfaces and standardizing the cloud infrastructure that the radio software runs on. But the point being there is that some of that needs to be quite close to the to the cell tower. You know, sometimes like microseconds away to to actually be able to do the radio functions of you know, setting up beams and steering stuff and checking the local radio interference levels and this sort of thing that needs to be quite physically pro- uh, close to the radio. You can't do that from a thousand miles away.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm a of consumer the- of let's say to use your example, I use Dish Network, mm-hmm. and while I get it on the back end, why Dish or whoever the consumer the provider is, um wants to host their own network for all these own these reasons do i notice an enhanced price or performance or whatever as a consumer of those services over say the dish network that may not have the same uh, infrastructure or is it all invisible to me
1: in the long run mm-hmm. virtualized networks i'm not sure whether i should say should or could be cheaper mm-hmm there will certainly be more flexible. But at the moment, if you can, I think the next five years, if you like, are a massive extended beta test of this model of building radio networks. Mm-hmm. There's some that already exist, you know, particularly ones that have been built greenfield um, with no legacy infrastructure. There's a couple in Japan that are, that are... Uh, particularly notable, dish. While, DISH's new 5G network in the US is going to be one. There's one in Germany. That's a Greenfield network where they've, they've designed the whole thing w- with these principles in mind. There's a couple of like, different variations on it, um, And in theory, they're cheaper, although it's always difficult to tell with initial networks because everyone does good deals on the hardware, right. but there's also a systems integration and testing. So you, know, you, you don't really get an idea of what the steady state is for a while. So it should be cheaper. There should be more suppliers of the various bits of the network. And that is of relevance both in terms of competition, but also in terms of uh, cyber resilience. So um, there's a concern, particularly in markets like North America or parts of the UK and Australia and other places where the Chinese vendors have been um, removed from the 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 option to sell to to carriers. Yeah, the world is is not is not quite a duopoly of Ericsson and Nokia, um, but there's a bit of NEC and a bit of Samsung. The, the The vendor list isn't very long, and so if there's a merger and acquisition, or one of them has a, a some other problem, or it gets hacked, or you you never know, mm-hmm. there's not a great diversity of options. I mean, actually, to be honest, at the moment, we've also got the semiconductor supply chain issues. So it could just be that one of them has problems with supply. So you can't mix and match. And so part of the, if you take the view that the telecom networks are part of critical national infrastructure, especially going forward, if they're running everything from the public safety network to manufacturing to utility grids, there is um, a national security interest in having more suppliers of the components, um, so so th- th- that so you do you notice it. Well, hopefully one of the things you won't notice is a failure of supply. So there's a bit of a, a yeah. now the other side to it in the long term is why you would want these virtualized networks is you can start doing software defined clever functions, and so. There's a number of organizations and and standards that are now looking to make radio networks more programmable. So almost like you could add in additional applications. So a, a clever developer works out a way to do Energy optimization for the cellular network. I mean the most basic level is switch bits off overnight when they're not being used very much. But it could also be more, more, more smart than that and going, well, actually, if we use this frequency in this place with these customer profiles, then the performance is, is, is comparable, but we say 15% of, of energy. And that could be a third-party developer might be able to write that fun optimization function and run it on that network, the smarter network or maybe someone comes up with a, a way of doing beam forming for moving drones you know, at, at some height above ground which isn't the way most networks get designed someone comes up with the you know radio drone control application now, it's not going to I mean some people will say oh it's going to be like an app store and you'll be able to download i don't think it's going to be quite like that particularly for soft stuff like drones there'll be lots of testing and security security requirements but the the idea is that essentially it makes the networks Smarter and more flexible and more capable, but to be so, honest, it's going to be way together.
0: Pause for one second because you said two or three things. So I'm a optimist. My audience has heard this a million times, but the but the concerned citizen also comes out in me. Wait a minute, are you just drinking water or is that a gin and tonic? Because I'm just drinking. No, water, that's water. Coffee.
1: Sadly, it's, okay. it's, it's only it's only. Yeah, two thirty in the afternoon here. So, uh, so tomorrow Um, would be different. My birthday tomorrow. Well, we have then. Then it would you would see the slice of lime in
0: it. I just hosted some friends of mine from Manchester, and I don't know that two thirty would be a barrier to gin and tonic for them. But that's a conversation (laughs) for another day. But anyway, Friday. Friday You know those people in Manchester. But anyway, um, (laughs) So when you were first talking about, you know, there's a short list of suppliers. What went to my one of the thoughts that jumped to my mind was, and I had this thought also with Cisco, all reputable, highly regarded organizations, this is not a picking on them. But if you've, if you imagine how much of the world's back end infrastructure runs on these two or three or four providers, Mm. I, I, I only have to hack or exploit an OS or two on these devices, and and i've crippled a significant part of the world you know depending upon their ability to harden their devices and stay on top of it so that mm-hmm. gets me nervous and then when you talk about virtual networks in the way like as national critical infrastructure which i absolutely believe we should do that and one of the reasons why is we hear what the things going on in eastern europe right now one of the potential threats to whatever nation states might want to interfere in that is hey look we as a antagonists have the ability this is the threat anyway at least the implied threat um to interfere with your critical uh virtual infrastructure so what i hear smart network another sometimes i hear vulnerable network right we've seen that in the uk in the hospital and medical world we've seen it in the states many times our pipeline famously this past summer beef production other things so so just I know we hadn't signed up and mm-hmm. I'm not trying to get to talk about this. I know you're, you know, we've got a couple other things to talk about, but I would love just for a few moments, What what's the real level of threat as of today to that kind of vulnerability? And the, and am I wrong to think that whenever we say smart network, that we're also introducing an element of risk and vulnerability, depending upon the people who are responsible for that. And if I imagine these are governments some mm. of you know some at the federal or the national level pretty robust but the deeper you get into tears i've seen this in the medical world a, a nationally recognized hospital for example in downtown atlanta has a lot they've got a, a robust ciso team they've got a lot of hardening that goes on the idea that you're going to get an exploit one of those machines in the surgery is slim mm. the further you get out into the suburb or rural area they're, they're no less smart, but they're usually less staffed, less funded, and they're more vulnerable as they connect these IOT things or whatever. So I don't know if that's a parallel, but I'd love your it's, comment or opinion it, on this. It, the, 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 the answer is that it expands the
1: potential threat surface,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but it also, if you have open and ideally open source interfaces, it allows those interfaces to be scrutinized and it also allows, uh, let's say it could be government sponsored test labs to certify things. And so I think that, that there are trade offs here, absolutely. And I think I was at a European regulators meeting yesterday, and they had a breakout session specifically on 5g and cybersecurity. And, and so you know, th- there are a lot of trade offs here of cost of flexibility of security of supply and supply diversification of threat surfaces. Yeah, you know, the, the, the answer is that there's, it's like a five way trade off, and there's no nice answer to it. Yeah, right. um, yeah, you know, you know, because the other thing is not just a, a, a risk from hacking, it could just be a bug. I mean, sure. there's been instances where, you know, there's been a problem because you know, someone got the date format wrong, or whatever it happened to be. And that's taking networks offline. So you know, you 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 fundamentally now you could argue, well, you know, isn't two network, isn't two network suppliers enough? Yeah, you know, we've only got Boeing and Airbus for planes, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And we seem to do all right. We've only got pretty much our arm and intel for a lot of a lot of processes. and I mean arguably you could say those are those are stable. Um now, to be fair, I would say the generations of, of of aircraft don't change as rapidly as they do generations of um, uh, of networks. And you don't have the sort of heterogeneity and uh, and multiple generations at the same time in the same system. But I, I think that the, 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 those, I'm not a cybersecurity specialist, but my understanding is that those trade-offs, people are aware of them this is why this stuff's not going to happen overnight. There's two reasons. One is people want to test everything, and they want to watch it. watch it. Um, and also, there's such a lot of legacy that, that whatever the new stuff will need to work in tandem with the old stuff in most instances anyway. Um, so what I'm st- seeing is a lot of institutional interest in this com- concept of open and programmable networks, but all the security agencies and some of the more, shall we say, traditionalist service providers are going, you know, let's take this easy. So I know, for example, here in the UK, um, BT is starting to run the the emergency service, the public safety network for um, uh, police and ambulance crews over their four G network.
0: And BT is British Telecom.
1: British Telecom, yeah, uh, and a thing called the emergency services network. And they are understandably very conservative about the network. Because that's literally critical that national infrastructure, similar to FirstNet in the in the u s, and so you know they, the b t is is a little bit of a hawk on this concept and say, "Look, it sounds great in principle, but we're not doing it overnight. you know we we quite like to have the things that we've measured, we know we'll watch this other stuff, maybe we'll trial it in yeah you know, so, yeah you know, so what you'll start what you'll see is this new stuff being trialed either in Greenfield networks, which, which include Rakuten in Japan, Dish in the US, one-on-one in Germany
0: and a few others,
1: mm-hmm. or in parts of the network which are,
0: should we say, less critical? Or do, or do it in do Dover. Dover. Nobody goes visit Dover anymore. Do it oh. over in Dover. And the. Well, but see, well, well you, Vodafone's doing it. was doing it in Wales. Well, tell us, there you go. You know.
1: Uh, oh, I was oh, oh, uh, the Welsh government last week. Uh, well, so they're, uh, they're, they're big friends of mine, but yeah. But,
0: um, <laughs> well, shoot. Robert Plant grew up there and he wrote a lot of his best music out there. So they could they could put up with a little bit of it. Yeah. But,
1: but, but what maybe, I was going to yeah, you Maybe you've got an island somewhere or you've got a rural region with no coverage at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, in the US, you've got a lot of rural carriers that are having to do rip and replace because they have Huawei or ZTE gear um, that they're needing to get rid of. And so that's a a target market as well for some of the the newer stuff. And, And what you are definitely getting is the security scrutiny, including from government agencies. And I think certainly in the UK, in Germany, I think in the US, I'm not sure, there are government-funded test labs both to check the interoperability and to check cybersecurity vulnerabilities. And I think that's actually – I'm not a big fan of government intervention in saying you should use this technical approach versus that technical approach, but I think it's acceptable to have governments do, running things like interop and security testing labs. Why don't I think you like a, the
0: uh, – why don't you like them – Define And here's why I asked that question, yeah. you know, when the internet was originally built, we had a guy, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, mm-hmm. it's a long podcast, it's four hours. So take it in st- steps. But it's a guy named uh, Clint he- or um, Heidi Heiden. Um, Colonel Heidi Heiden, he was with the military. And he was the guy who decided on the uh, IPX protocol being the protocol the military was going to adopt. There are a number of options yeah. out there. It was that he was also the guy who decided on what the standards for the GPS that we were going to use, and he it's a fascinating conversation on how he came to be there, built, helped build out the first telecom, proposed telecom hmm. infrastructure in Spain, to because they the Spanish people thought there was going to be a coup when their dictator died, or not a coup, but there was going to be uh, anarchy when their dictator died, and they wanted somebody to help build an infrastructure so that um, our enemies that were you know trying to i mean it's just a complicated oh, fascinating yeah. thing but they were heavily involved the military in any way which is a branch of the government in based upon national security adaptability or whatever else they go through darpa our um think tank here in the states our military uh, intel think tank which is made up primarily of non-military people it's um CTOs, cios of uh the smartest organizations internationally many times, but here in the States, that come in there and um, serve their country by working in this think tank. So I'm curious what there's a not look, I'm a libertarian, there are a lot of things I don't want my government involved in there are a few, I think they're the only ones to do it. But w- why would you not want them to make the decision or am I and, and a standard that we all agree on? Firstly, that last sentence, a standard we all agree on. Um, because often
1: the standards aren't agreed, right. or they are contentious, or or or, or they create additional competition with incumbents. Mm. And I think it's different if you if you're starting from scratch and you're creating GPS or you're creating the internet in the 1960s. You're not really you're not, and it's primarily as a military tool. Right. You are not competing with two or three established providers that have their own. Uh, products or even an existing uh, set of standards, um, you're creating it greenfield up for a single application, which then may, as in the case of both GPS and IP and the internet, subsequently the commercial world looked at it and went, Oh, we can do something with this. But whereas with, say, wireless networks, there's existing wireless networks that are built by respected companies that work. Um, you know, and what I'm wary of and so are a lot of the the carriers is government saying you need to start building them in this way firstly because they've got all the legacy stuff which you need to interoperate with and secondly because it's a commercial decision yeah and it may well be that yeah that some networks will take the extra cost and inflexibility of going with an established integrated solution um and i'm thinking here, for example utility companies Tend to buy they build utility companies build wireless networks, but they tend to be very robust, they might might have all sorts of redundancy, and they don't mind proprietary features because it's for their internal use. They can have their specialists check it out, they can pay extra for redundancy if they want. You know, that they don't, and they're not that bothered by the fact that there's not five different suppliers for it. Because you know they're 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 creating a, an infrastructure which needs to last for thirty years. Yeah, in that in that sense, that's more similar to the the airlines being happy with Boeing and Airbus. They don't mind. There's almost like a a, a fastion you know, sort of lock in is acceptable because the airlines know they need to train all their pilots. They need to get all the maintenance up. Yeah, if there were seventeen suppliers of aircraft. You wouldn't find airlines buying from 17 of them because they didn't have 17 maintenance maintenance uh, uh, hangars and and train all their staff you know cross training it just makes no sense so i think that there's that there are certain benefits to having diversity of supply and there are certain other benefits of having less supply and i think it's a commercial decision on the part of whether it's a telecom carrier or an airline of do they want more or less options or are there other
0: trade-offs in play? Kind of like when Henry Ford I mean, I sh- said, you can get a Model T in any color you want as long as it's black.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you know, for a lot of people, that was fine. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was an acceptable part of the trade-off. And the, the, what I'm less happy with is where governments particularly um, uh, insist on something which is not yet proven at scale mm-hmm. and which will take a few years to mature that doesn't have, let's say, today it's not feature comparable. It might not be as energy efficient. No, it may well be in five years' time, it's more energy efficient. But fine, let's see what happens. And so I think at the moment, we should view these sort of open wireless network technologies as really interesting, really promising for certain companies in certain places if they make their decisions and trade-offs. And I think government should be supporting it and providing, you know, perhaps enablers like test labs, um, which I think is a uh, you know is valuable for all concerned, um, you know, and secure and certainly security oversight and certification. Uh, I think I think those type of things, uh, you know, are, are properly the role of
0: government. One of the things we talked about off camera before we came on, besides uh, where we've kind of gone down this route, and I I really appreciate it, is um, the democratization. Networks, and especially for this audience, um, you know, a lot of this our previous conversations kind of been around the engineering and how these things are going to work. But if I'm a regular person and you're sitting next to me on the airplane, uh, either Airbus or Boeing, and they say, uh, "Hey, my name's Dave. Who are you? I'm Dean. Dean, what are you thinking about these days?" And you say, "You know what? I'm thinking about the philosophical." possibilities and consequences of networks being democratized. They then realize they're going to have a nice long nap on their flight across the pond. (laughs) But what you really want to share to them is no, no, no. no. I know that may be a phrase that you're not familiar with, but here's how it affects you as a human being. And this is a big deal. So however you want to get land the plane, as they say, to that answer on why it's important to us. Why don't you help us to understand what you mean and then why is it important? probably the best thing to do is to say there's a good example of of a type of network which
1: is already democratized which is wi-fi so wi-fi you can go to the store buy a wi-fi access point and connect your computer or your refrigerator or your lights or anything else to it you haven't got to ask anyone for permission you don't need any special spectrum license it just works and there's probably a couple of million people around the world who are reasonably technically skilled enough to build a Wi-Fi network for a business, and are probably a few hundred thousand who are really skilled to build a good network, which is like enterprise-grade. So Wi-Fi is an example of a, t- of a network technology which is pretty democratized, and it's democratized both in terms of lots of sources of supply of the equipment, in terms of the fact that it uses what's called unlicensed spectrum um, so you can go and you you don't need to apply to the FCC or Ofcom or your local regulator for do I need a radio license? It, it's it, It's almost like the 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 thing you buy from the store or the the enterprise supplier, they're pre-certified to have the right frequencies, the right power outputs, and you as the the democratized customer can just buy it. Yeah. And what I'm seeing is that that concept of anyone can build a network is starting to apply to cellular networks as well. Yeah. Historically, each country has had two, three, four national networks. In some cases, they've been regionalized. So the U.S. and Canada and India have some regional providers with varying sizes. But the principle is the same. There's very rarely more than two, three or four per area. And these are what are called public mobile network operators or carriers. And so you go and buy your contract and typically a SIM card from one of those. Some of them have a, a sort of a resale deal with partners. So you'll see what, what's called a virtual operator. So it could be like, uh, I think in the US, you've had historically boost and a few a whole bunch of others as well. But they're using the same network. They're right. essentially wholesalers. To, to a degree, and and you see those around the world. But what's happening now is it's becoming possible for other organisations to build their own cellular networks. Now, this has happened for a while. I mean, the, the, you know, you've had utility companies and occasionally railway companies, or perhaps military, that have had private, you know, dedicated cellular networks. Certain mines in the middle of Australia, or wherever. Um, But that's been rare and expensive and like a one-off type thing. What we're now moving to a world is um, of that being much more open to enterprises and, and I'll come on to this in a second, other organizations. So in the US, you're probably familiar with, a a, a lot of people in the wireless industry are familiar with the term CBRS, Citizens Broadband Radio Service, which is a, yeah, essentially it's a chunk of radio spectrum used to be used mostly by uh, the US Navy and a few other you know, satellites and other companies, which is now let's just say it's available on a it's not quite a Wi Fi like basis, but it's it's easier to obtain. So than having
0: a Make sp- sure we're saying the same thing. When I was a kid in the late 60s, early mid 70s. Everybody had a thing called a CB radio. Is that what we're yeah. talking about? It's not really. It, no. I, I think they used the CB just probably to evoke that
1: that sense
0: of yeah. I mean, and again, I mean, to be honest, CB radio was another Truckers democratized had them, radio. Everybody had them. Did you did you not have a CB handle? Did you not uh, have
1: one? Point, well, in the UK, it was never really a big thing. Oh my so, gosh!
0: No wonder. But. but oh.
1: uh Yeah, but again, to be honest, that was another or ham radio as well. Those are democratized wireless networks. But this is a bit more for for like a cell phone type network using cell phone type technology, more suitable for um, an enterprise, or perhaps a rural uh, wireless carrier for fixed access, fixed wireless access. So you know, the, around the world, the US an example, there are chunks of radio spectrum suitable to run a 4G or 5G network that are now available under different rule sets for use for, you know, it could be an enterprise that wants to provide um, wireless connectivity to security cameras or robots or um, uh, push to talk terminals on their port or airport or factory or, or, or in their warehouse or something like that. Um, and so this is this is happening really, it's like hidden inflection point in the last two years. Although though it's been sort of bubbling on at small scale for a lot longer. Um, and you're starting to see these private networks that are used in primarily industrial settings. So I say like ports, airports, factories, um, you know, chemical plants, um, maybe rail, maybe you know, rail marshalling yards or something like that. But but sort of, in, you know, mines, oil oil rigs, offshore wind farms, all of these things where you've got a mix of, um, particularly people on site needing push-to-talk voice. You've got video cameras in a lot of these places, and increasingly you've got vehicles and robots and moving, you know, sort of autonomous forklifts and this sort of thing.
0: Usually some size of scale. It's It's a pretty big... You know, I'm thinking of a lot yeah, of the mining yeah. and other operations here. There's a large scale. Yeah,
1: and and often they're partly out. Some are, some are outdoors, some are indoors. Right. But they're the sort of things that you wouldn't use Wi-Fi on because wi fis is normally got, you know, a couple 100 feet radius, if you're lucky. So if you had like a, an airport that's, you know, eight miles by eight miles, the number of Wi Fi access points you'd need to cover the entire area is enormous. Right. Um, and it's frankly, it's not realistic, whereas you can do the same thing with a much smaller number of cell towers. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, and the thing is, is, you know, whilst you could have done that with, you know, traditional what's called land mobile radio, so walkie talkies, that's a, a very narrow band. It's usable, OK for voice, but you wouldn't have 4K video cameras around the perimeter fence for security running over, over the same network. Whereas if you had a private 4G or 5G network, you can do that. Um, and so you're starting to see initially enterprises. And then you know, people are now looking at it for other business applications. So it could be sports stadiums. It could be hotels. It could be retail stores and malls. Um, school districts are looking at it um, hospitals so more sort of non-industrial settings. so you're starting to get this becoming a possibility and the rules are slightly different in different parts of the world. there's different radio bits of radio spectrum with different powers and different application processes. so it's a bit it's a bit fragmented at the moment but us UK, Germany, Japan, France, Finland and a few other places. This is starting to become a really big deal. So, so at the moment, you're starting to see, yeah, to see this sort of split between, you know, traditional national carriers, the telcos, and enterprises. Now, at one point in the four G and five G hype cycle a few years ago, everyone thought it was going to be the carriers that would do this, the factory network or the port network, and it's happening up to a point. But a lot of these cases, those organisations want their own network, mm. um, and they and there's a number of reasons. Firstly. It could just be that the, the public network doesn't cover that. If you've got a, an offshore wind turbine, there's probably no coverage from the national network anyway. Right. So if you want to have a network, you, you either got to pay the carrier to put their network there or build it yourself and own it yourself. Um, or it could be the control. It might well be that the way that the public network is set up for general use has got a certain mix of sort of upstream and downstream capacity, but maybe you've got a lot more AK cameras on your dockside crane. So your uplink is huge. But actually, the downlink is just the is is low level control. It's important, but it's it's, it's a far less capacity required. So you might want to be able to tailor the radio network to your needs, you might have um, data security requirements which means actually you want to own the infrastructure you want to have the control system sitting in a secure rack in your port or airport or factory with no data going outside and no risk that a fiber cut means that you'd lose access to your own network and your factory would go offline so so there's there's a whole set of reasons why enterprises might want to have a private 4g 4G or 5g network probably working alongside their wi-fi and their fixed ethernet as well for other different machines and purposes. So, you, you, yeah, But it would be in-house. What I'm now seeing is, as well as the enterprise market, a bunch of other, um, I like the word stakeholder, but I'm going to use it anyway, uh, another in, interested parties are, are looking at saying, well, actually, we could, to, could use this. So in the last few months, I've spoken to a number of municipal or regional governments that are going, well, maybe we can build our own network to run our smart city functions, or depending where they are, to to run our health services, or we want to have telehealth. To we've got you know clinics around around the the city or the state that aren't very well connected. Maybe we could connect them directly rather than going to a commercial provider. Maybe we could provide um, tele education for households which can't afford normal broadband and we can subsidize that because we run the education services in in the local area yeah you know, yeah you know, maybe it's for smart city services like lighting and you know information for the transit system and and the uh, refuse collection uh, and and so on waste management so, so you're starting to see municipalities think well can we have our own network um early days and and you could make an argument that's like well why would a local council Want to run a five G network of its own? You know, do they have the staff? Do they have the expertise? And I think that what you'll see is that some will make that decision. They say, no, no, we want to be the city of the future, and this is part of our proposition to attract businesses to to our region. Yeah, we're going to be the cyber city. Yeah, and we've got our business park and our science park, and the fact that we've got our own five G network, we think is going to attract inward investment. So I'm saying that. And some other cities are working with infrastructure providers like the tower companies, um, who are diversifying to doing this on a sort of build and operate basis, where they say, all right, we will work with the council of wherever on a 20-year contract to build 5G coverage through the city center and in the business park um, and the port. Um and you know, by the way, we'll also do the underground railroad system for for covering under yeah. Uh, uh, you know, coverage for the public networks as well. So you, you started to get these regional authorities looking at it. You're finding small, isolated communities saying, well, frankly, we're off the grid here. Um, the carriers can't or won't build decent coverage, so can we build our own localised network? Uh, and you know, maybe at some point, you might even see unlicensed um, cellular networks. In the same way we get free Wi-Fi, you go into a hotel or a cafe, mm-hmm. you might even have free 5G in future.
0: You know, it's interesting. Yeah. I, one of the things that when you were talking about why organizations might want to do this, surprising, you didn't mention one thing that I see in other uh, um, other um, business types, and that is, we we don't want to be beholden to somebody else's maintenance schedule. We yeah. we want to determine what, where, and when we perform this, and not informed yes. because change management once you're happy with somebody the idea of taking components of a network down when you may be doing a big migration or something's going on is terrifying to organizations have you found that to be true as well
1: yeah i think i think the maintenance and also resilience right so at the moment yeah if my local cell tower goes down I'll lose lose connection. It's the the network is. I might it might be able to pick me up from the next cell tower along. It might not. Right. But I spoke to someone who did the wireless 4G or 5G network for a port, and they said they've designed it so that they can literally switch off any of the cell towers in the port, and they still have 100% coverage for every machine. Right. And the same thing inside factories. There's people who do design tools that make sure that each robot has line of sight to at least two of the small cells. Right. Yeah. yeah, that makes so, sense. So, 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 in that situation, and then on the maintenance side, yes, absolutely. That the yeah, and it could be maintenance, it could be software upgrade, it could also be life cycle. If you're running a utility network, your investment life cycle is 25 or 30 years. Right. You don't want to have at the moment. A lot of the networks around the world are switching off their old 2G and 3G networks. You don't want to be sitting at your desk in 2040, no. and your carrier phones you up and say, "Sorry, we're 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 changing the 6G network out to 8G." or whatever it happens to be, you know, you're gonna to have to change all your gear. And if, if the utility company buys it, then it can say, well, actually, we'll phase our own network out in 2055. Thank you very much. Yeah, you know,
0: there's our plan. I agree. But if in 18 years, I'm sitting at a desk at some utility uh-huh. company, then I could care less. The second thing <laughs> is, um, there's this phenomenon that has started during COVID that I that a lot of people I think have been talking about, but COVID gave them this opportunity. <clears throat> and what you're describing might be a way that they really can exploit it. And that is, I'm just going to choose a city. I don't know if this is true, but it's this is a city that seems to f- sort of fit the bill. At Tulsa, Oklahoma. I want to mm-hmm. lure citizens from the states or internationally for that matter, to my community. I don't have a beach. I don't have a port. I don't have a lot of I have mountains, right? It's a pretty place if people gave it a chance, but, but if they could build an infrastructure like this, that it's look, this is a destination. I'm going to build my park to have coverage like this. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to create an environment where, uh, trash and refuse pickup is automated through automated, whatever it is. I, I've seen a number of cities, I've seen countries are starting to do this. Usually in a town, in a country, a Costa Rica or whatever they say, look, I want to attract people to come here. And as part of your package, you get a quality of life like that looks like this. But we're going to make this quote unquote future city this integrated and this easy to use. And you're going to get all of this benefit. And what as you're describing this, um, CBRS and the democratization of this, it feels like maybe not today, but there's a pathway there then for communities to build. Um, an environment that's really attractive to, to persuade, seduce people to come to their world.
1: And it's starting to happen, and I think it's not just gonna be wireless, it's gonna be fiber infrastructure as well, and, and probably a lot of other stuff around, you know, transportation and transit. The, the best example of this that I I, I know that's currently ongoing is in um, on the Red Sea coast of Saudi Arabia. They are constructing a city called NEOM, N-E-O-M, from scratch in the middle of the desert, but they're they're doing it to create almost like a new enterprise, not even enterprise zone, but enterprise region Mm -hmm. with all of this infrastructure, ground up. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that you can imagine it's going to be some, yeah, probably it'll probably have sort of different semi-autonomous legal environment to make it. I don't know. They haven't announced it, but I'd like to think even though it's Saudi, maybe you can get a beer right? right. Um, yeah. But the point being that it's going to be a modern city aimed at exactly what you're talking about there. And I know that the, 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 the technology infrastructure, Yeah, the person I know who is who is the strategist for that is exactly thinking in those ways. And I think you know, th- they will look at transit, they will look at energy, they will look at yeah, you know, all of the sort of infrastructure components to attract businesses and individuals to that place. And I think that you know, will it include include the city running its own five G network? It might. May- it might do. It might be that the, the the mere possibility of them doing it means that they can go to one of the carriers and say, either you do this thing for us on a custom basis, or we'll do it ourselves. Mm. You know, which gives you a negotiation tool. Yeah. You know, so, and and I'm seeing the same thing here in the UK. Of some cities are doing it themselves. Some some are almost like holding it up as a as a you know, a way to encourage better better commercial propositions from the the, the carriers. So I think that, that you will see more and more of that. I mean, the ones in the UK I've seen is the the city of Sunderland, northeast of England, is building out a network. And that's partly um, for, uh, you know, the, the city's own services. It's also because they've got a big uh, Nissan car plant there and they've actually constructed some sort of, corridor down from the factory to the port where they can drive autonomous trucks down this sort of private road with all the cameras and all the rest of it, which is both improving the efficiency, it's helping to sustain the um, competitiveness of the Nissan factory, which is a big local employer. And it's also a showcase for look how cool we are with our autonomous truck
0: type. The only thing. thing I have to do for by way of interpretation there, I believe is here in the States, we would say Nissan, there uh-huh. in Sunderland, it's Nissen. Got it. I'm with you.
1: Uh, well, and actually, to be honest, with, with a Newcastle and Sunderland or Geordie accent, <laughs> I, I'm not even going to try it. <laughs> yeah, I've got a London accent. And in fact, I shouldn't have mentioned Newcastle's the other side of the river, and
0: Newcastle and Sunderland have massive uh, rivalries. So. Do they? Well, hey, look, um, we're almost out of time, but I, we cannot leave without me asking you this. Uh, so f- feel free to punt on the question. But um, I love uh, Dean Bubbly unscripted. Um, We may have to edit this because both of us want to be in a good light uh, at the end of it. But one of the things, you know, depending upon the month or the year, we get a lot of buzzwords, uh, the edge, AI, machine learning, 5G, uh, autonomous, you know, in the data center industry, it used to be PUE, like all these other things. But today, most everybody, other than maybe, you know, the the uh, things going on in the Ukraine and Russia, of course, that's a conversation, decarbonization. Um, but I talk about that all the mm-hmm. time, decarbonization is a topic. But here's the one that's landed firmly in the lexicon in the last six months. In fact, one of the largest, most profitable companies on earth has recently changed their name referring to the metaverse. Mm -hmm. So you as a in your world that you live in, and we and I love talking to you because it's um, one you're an optimist, even though you try to do your best to convince us you're not you actually are an optimist. I'm really excited about things. I just want to make sure we're talking honestly about how they're going to connect together, what the ways we might grow these things, but I'm hopeful that we're going to get here and I'm doing my best to help understand and communicate to my the people you consult with and to the the greater world or the larger world like you do with us. And I appreciate that. But when you think about metaverse, just in this last five or 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. how, how, what you know about all of the network infrastructure you've just talked about and the ambitions of um, companies with a lot of power, a lot of money, a lot of people don't know Microsoft is just as committed as formerly Facebook now meta is to, this idea of metaverse, they're more on the commercial side, at least that's what they've stated. Yeah. Um, how likely is it not human behavior wise, whether we'll adopt it or not, but just from a technological interconnected um, opportunity? W- what do you think about when you hear that word and what's going on?
1: Um. Well, there's a couple of things. I wrote I a post on LinkedIn a few months ago, about when it, when Meta first announced this, where I said no, the Metaverse is not the killer application for five G. Mm. Um, which which sort of I haven't really changed much on it. Was interesting actually. Yesterday I was at a, a regulatory meeting in Brussels, and there were people both from Meta and from Microsoft's sort of um, you know, regulatory and government affairs teams talking to people about you know, telecoms and so on. One of the things I think that, that that we're going to see is more of these sort of immersive environments, but I think that they will predominantly be consumed indoors. Yeah, hmm.
0: yeah,
1: you know, you know, and, and I think that the meta is not it's not hundred percent, but let's say eighty or ninety percent of the metaverse will be an indoors phenomenon, which means it's probably more aligned to things like Wi-Fi. And localized indoor cellular networks, perhaps. I mean, there's there's a few few obvious reasons. One is, yeah, you know, if you walk down the, the street with a virtual reality headset and you'd like to walk into lampposts and, and things, yeah. but it's yeah. <laughs> so so you know, most of the things that people talk about for for this is, oh, it's um, it's gaming. It's uh, maybe we we'll have we'll have a virtual session next time where we're we're avatars around us. Yeah, and yes, in theory, I could do this outside, or you could do it in the garden, or whatever. But realistically, we're going to be doing it around a desk, where you because you're looking something else up on one of your other screens. There's going to be certain outdoor use cases for this. It could be games in the park. It could be a paramedic that's um, dealing with um, uh, an accident at the roadside. It could be yeah, a sort of an engineer fixing the electricity uh, pole. But those are sort of very specific examples you know, counter examples, a lot of it is going to be an interior designer or a game or a social environment. So, so from a connectivity point of view, I think that it is 80% plus about how you connect when you're in your sofa on your sofa or at the desk, um, or in your factory. So, so I think that then, and, and this is why I brought it up in some of the regulatory discussions, because that essentially means that if you buy into this vision of the metaverse, indoor networks need to be much more robust than they are today. And that has some interesting implications for how you build networks, who owns them, and do you deliver it with a Wi-Fi access point in your house or some signal from outside that goes through the window and the wall, Mm. which has all sorts of implications about what spectrum you use, what power you use, where you site the towers for it, what the capacity is like, what happens when you're in the basement or, or whatever. So so I think that's that to me is something which hasn't got as much traction. You know, and that's not to say that we won't also have have head-up displays or be wearing our AR gaming headsets when we're sitting in the back of a our autonomous car in 2035. Right. But that's the time scales. On a five-year view, it's next gen communications like we're doing now or gaming. Or sort of engineering and field, field force automation tools, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's how do I load this truck or how do I load this aircraft in the hangar with all the stuff I want to put in it? Um so I think that, and you'll certainly you'll see Meta, you'll see Microsoft and a bunch of others that do that, whether it's full, whether whether it's fully virtual worlds or whether it's what I call augmented and mixed reality. Um, the other thing to think about here is the power consumption requirements to do all the processing and the thing we started talking about around latency and where you do the compute. My suspicion is that initially, at least, a lot of the compute will be done maybe on a headset, but probably on a phone or a PC, perhaps physically tethered with a USB cable, but it could be Bluetooth or something you know, for the last two feet. Some of the graphics rendering might be done on the cloud, but then you again have to think about, well, it needs to work over every network in every building, unless it's something that's custom designed for a specific factory or you test test it for your house and then your friend comes around and they're on a different different network. Can you still play the game? Mm. yeah uh, yeah so so I would say those are some of the things that I'm thinking about
0: on this. So, you, so you. It sounds like what you're saying is yes. Seems like we're well on this path. Two, it's primarily going to be indoors in the near term, anyway. And three, we're probably 10 to 12 years before the closest iteration of, you know, what Hollywood would show us when somebody steps into a metaverse and Ready Player yeah. One or whatever or something like that. That the the first shade of that is going to we're we're still a ways away.
1: I mean, yeah, you, uh, there's some quite good virtual experiences today. But I think that the idea, I mean, firstly, I don't buy this idea that we're going to be spending six hours a day each in it. And yeah, for things like gaming or for things like you, know, you are a mechanic and you need to sort of see something that shares this is where you put the wrench and you know or whatever it has and it's overlaid on your field of view i think that's near term I mean, that's some of that's that's today right yeah you know, or it could be a designer you're you're doing your interior design of a house and you, you know, i've got a, a like a augmented reality app from ikea on my phone that uses the iphone's uh radar function the uwb and it can, it'll put a, like a virtual sofa in my room it's not it's not 100 realistic but it's not right. bad right. given it's on a phone screen and it, and it, it looks like it's got perspective and things right. so i think we'll, we'll get there incrementally i don't think it's gonna be a big bang and i think we'll see more bits of it crop up i don't buy this whole oh you'll have an avatar sold to you by some web 3.0 organization and it's an nft and it's all going to be done on blockchain eh. I'm a bit skeptical of that, to be honest. And maybe there's going to be little bits of that, but you're, 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 the, the, the mechanic is not going to be, yeah, using an NFT of a, of a virtual wrench when they're working out how to, to fix something.
0: Right. Well, I think on that note, that's a great place to wrap up this discussion. I don't think we can top that close. That was fantastic, Dean. Thank you again for uh, joining us today. And um, what where where can people find you so that they can read what you're up to besides linkedin we'll have that link posted below where else can they find you um disruptive dean on twitter is
1: probably the easiest um, and then on linkedin i actually have a newsletter as well as my my Perfect. sort of personal posts okay. um which i I'd probably put something out about once a month but it's uh and then i hope at the moment i'm definitely speaking at more live events as well so um on some of these these things are i i'll, I'll, I'll I'll be it there's a Wi-Fi event in, actually in Cancun in May, I should be at, and uh, various sort of 5G and, and Wi-Fi like
0: related events. So there's, there's a good chance I'll be at one of them. All right, Dean Bubbly, thank you for joining us today on the QTS Experience. And if you've enjoyed the show and the conversation, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. We'll see you next time, everybody. Have a good one. Thanks, man. Cheers.